Hello and welcome to Oops I Talked Politics, the left-wing political podcast where sometimes it's one host by himself introducing an interview episode and that's what it is right now. So if you aren't aware, I think I've mentioned it, but I have just recently gotten married and Borat Voice, my wife and I, are on a honeymoon. So I recorded this interview a few weeks ago, so it's not topical, but it is with Ivan who is in our Facebook group and the Flying Machine Facebook group, so you might have seen them pop up from time to time. And I just talked to Ivan about some of their views about where we should be going as a society, anarchy and community, and just basically getting down to how Ivan's views are different from the ones usually talked about in the leftist circles that I usually frequent, which are a pretty mainstream, let's just vote for a better healthcare and stuff like that. So I hope you enjoy it. And maybe next episode will be regular. Maybe it'll be the one after it. But either way, I'll be back soon. And I'll see you guys then. Bye. Hello, it's Ryan for here with Ivan. From They See Me Rolling and The Color of Friendship. Hi, Ivan. Oh, hi. It's me. I'm here. <laughs> so you're new to this show, but mm-hmm. if anyone has listened to my other show, we'll get it right next year. You've been on a couple episodes. Yeah. But those, I and your shows as well, I would not consider them political shows at all. We uh, stray into it occasionally, but um, definitely not purposefully because we, especially with uh, Color of Friendship... Well, we have no idea where it's going to go when we start recording. Usually it just goes to uh, talking about today's YouTube sensations, but um, (laughs) sometimes it's politics. So in case our listeners aren't familiar with your work, Color of Friendship is a Disney Channel original movie podcast, Mm -hmm. and They See Me Rolling is an actual play D&D podcast that every once in a while there'll be a plot moment where I'm like... (laughs) I really want to hear Ivan get into this, (laughs) but usually Skump, your goblin character, doesn't really dip into it too much. I think that ultimately that character is pretty influenced by the way that I think about politics, but I think that ultimately like the, the way that he thinks is different from the way that I think. What, you don't like eat spiders all the time? (laughs) No, not usually, <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> so where do you fall politically? In in real life, not necessarily in Faerun. I I think for simplicity, quote-unquote simplicity, depends on who I'm talking to and depends on how I feel day by day because mm-hmm. it does change. But I think in general, I would characterize myself as either an anarcho-communist, so an anarchist who is also a communist, which is 
a confusing thing to a lot of people. Yeah, I'm going to ask about that in a um, sec. <laughs> or another thing that is uh, similarly confusing to a lot of people, especially in the United States, a uh, libertarian socialist. Okay, so I don't know. I don't understand either of those terms. <laughs> so actually, the both the word anarchist and the word libertarian, uh, somebody can correct me if I'm not actually correct on this, but I believe that they were actually both coined to describe um, a leftist tendency. Okay. I, th- I think that the word anarchy existed before, it was used by by leftists. I'm pretty sure that libertarian exists in contrast with more traditional Marxists. Okay. Uh, Marxists in general. You could call me a Marxist. I think Marx is fine, but um, <laughs> he's fine. He's fine. <laughs> I, I very rarely hear someone with like a pretty neutral opinion <laughs> on Marx. <laughs> he, he's got some useful stuff. <laughs> So Marxists generally and especially um, Marxist-Leninists and the descendants of that. So like Maoists, things like that. So like what do you like if like if if you were put, you know, if you were writing the new constitution, how would you structure like what do you think? Well, what do you believe in, I guess? So I think what is most important is the way that resources are distributed. Okay. So obviously like everybody has an opinion on how resources should be distributed and distributed is a loaded word. Mm -hmm. Like when, when you say distributed, a lot of the time people think about somebody distributing things purposefully. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't have to be the case. Um, Like the way that capitalism for example, our government does distribute resources and redistribute resources through mm-hmm. taxes and and other things like that. But also, when you go and when you work um, and get paid money and then use that money to buy a thing, that's distribution of resources. Uh-huh. I believe that resources should be distributed in a much more equal way. And I think that by default, that would be in a much more voluntary way. Okay, so how do you... So if you say no one's actually doing the distribution, like, or no one's controlling that distribution, how do you... How is it equal? Like, I don't want to say how is that enforced, but, like, yeah. a nicer way of that question, I guess. <laughs> I know I know what you're saying. We got into the really hard philosophical questions <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah, because, like, in, like, in my opinion... You know, humanity generally tends to be a little greedy. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the so case. So, like, if if we're, you know, at a market and there's all this food, like, and everyone should have it equally, like, you know, I don't think anyone should starve. How How do you stop people from just taking it all? So, I think that when there is enough, which there is, there's enough food in the world to feed, like, food production as it is, can easily feed 10 billion people, even despite our horribly inefficient way of making food, which is involves a lot of meat and corn and biofuel mm-hmm. and a, a bunch of things that I, I think are really inefficient. So 
I don't think that if food could be equally gotten to every place, which is, you know, a big logistical thing. Imagine like you're you're in your town, you're going to wherever you get all the food or even like if you're at a party and there's a certain amount of food, there's more than enough food for everybody. It's not that hard to manage the logistics of making sure everybody gets food like on a personal level like vague vaguely walking around the room and being like has everybody got a piece of cake yet can i have a second one that's a normal human behavior Mm -hmm. and i think that because of the scale and the other things going on with the way that our economy is set up it causes people to forego that pretty normal human behavior of trying to vaguely make sure everything is equal. And if everybody is vaguely making sure everything is equal, pr- things will be pretty much equal, I think. Okay. In an, uh, in an ideal situation where there's not a bunch of other things pulling in, in different directions. I frequently thought about that kind of concept where, like, I feel like at a micro level, people are inherently good and at a macro level, people are inherently bad. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you're saying that capitalism, the system that we have now, sends the message that things are scarce and that things are fleeting. So it, like, convinces people to give in to their worst impulses yeah definitely so how do you make sure that they're the places that like because like i can't grow crops in my area you know like if i live in Mm -hmm. like i live near a city how do i get enough food there for the people or do you think like in your system people will just naturally spread out more because they're not fighting over the same limited resources in an area No, I think that people would still live in cities and probably in pretty similar settlement patterns to they already do on a large scale. So, like, how do you get enough food to, like, New York City where that we can do that lap and say, like, hey, does everybody have some? Because, like, you still have to, like, use resources to deliver that food there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think some people would disagree with me, but I think that it's... Uh, Yeah, I think that that is a logistical problem, and I think that it would be fine to have democratically run local entities that do logistics and other things like that. Like some uh, right-wing libertarians seem to think that a bunch of people can go out and build their own road from scratch, which is just not the reality of how building roads work. Mm Mm-hmm. You need to have a body that is able to coordinate those logistics. Mm -hmm. The problem would just be if that body is based on a hierarchy that isn't voluntary. Okay. So if you have no agency, if you're a construction worker and you have no agency in who your boss is and they can tell you to do whatever as a construction worker in order for you to get paid and there's violence backing that up because you need to get paid in order to live you need Mm -hmm. to get paid through this job or another job if you can find one which is difficult yeah um in order to live then that's your boss having a hierarchy based on violence Mm -hmm. because you have to do what he says otherwise you die yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you okay. get fired, 
you and then you don't have any money unless you find another job uh which is not always possible so basically yeah that's they have the the ability to do violence to you yeah so the the question that i have is like so in this system if if everybody has agency it's a i i gather that when you say like a small democratically elected like council or, or whatever to me that sends a message that you have more agency because you're making up a smaller portion a larger percentage of the voting block yeah i think there are also a lot of problems with the way that we think about democracy so if you have a country like ours or an even larger country like india for example which has billions of people in it voting in a in a parliamentary system that's pretty similar to a lot of parliaments of smaller countries and especially with our country because it's sort of uniquely based on executives and like larger larger voting pools mm-hmm. than a parliament system if roughly 50% of the voting population votes for one thing then the other 50 per roughly 50 percent like the other 49 percent plus all of the people who didn't vote plus all of the people who aren't allowed to vote have Mm -hmm. to abide by the ruling that's not particularly democratic yeah so more like there is so many more millions of people that didn't vote for our president that now has to listen to what the president says and mm-hmm. chooses. The, yeah, which means that essentially the only reason why the president or whoever, whatever elected official has any power is purely through violence and not in any way through choosing choosing to be part of that hierarchy so in this case when you say violence you're still meaning the same kind of thing where we have to listen to him otherwise we are like removed from society in one way or the other yeah really all political anything is based on violence somewhere any ideology every ideology justifies violence in some way a a really good example that i heard the other day there was a headline probably a couple years ago now that said violence breaks out after police officer shoots student. So what yeah. it's saying is the police officer shooting the student wasn't violence, mm-hmm. but then violence broke out in response to that. It was probably much less violent than the act of shooting someone to death. Yeah. But it stands out. If shooting someone isn't violence, I don't know what is. <laughs> yes, but so the ideology that sort of reveals that the the ideology that it's written behind, where it's saying that it is okay for state actors to yeah be violent towards non-state people. Mm-hmm. So in that same vein, when you have these like different small democratic like localities. Are they connected in any way? So one idea that I find useful, I need to do more research on it, but it's an idea that's put into practice in um, northern Syria in Kurdistan. Okay. Called uh, democratic confederalism, which I think is a pretty neat idea. The idea is you can have these these small localities where 
the sovereign entity, it's not exactly anarchism because there are sovereign state-like entities, but the sovereign state-like entities are extremely small and about like they're neighborhood sized they're mm-hmm. or municipality sized okay and those municipalities can have any relationship to each other that they want like obviously your municipality probably does it's not in your municipality's interest to have anything but a friendly relationship to the one right next to it and so they can confederate into a larger body while also maintaining their own ability to deconfederate uh, uh, mm-hmm. whenever they wish to. Okay. So now the thing that I've been thinking about while you describe this utopia is this to me seems like it would only work if the whole world did this at once. Cause I can't imagine a world where like America does this mm-hmm. and the like the rest of the world still has their like imperialist armies and militaries and governments and yeah. that seems to me like it's just asking to become conquered mm-hmm. yeah that like that sort of entity can't even talk to something like the united nations they yeah. don't have the ability to communicate with each other yeah so is this is more like your ideal world and not necessarily what you think like we should be pushing for. Or do you think that we that there's a chance of pushing the global paradigm this way? That's a difficult question. Yeah. And it it my feelings on it change depending on whether I'm feeling optimistic or not. I mean, right now, like I said, it is being practiced, but. You know, everything's being practiced somewhere. Something a lot of anarchists like myself say sometimes that I don't find horribly convincing. But I think it does have a grain of truth to it. That anarchism has been tried and has been successful, but they were destroyed by outside forces. Exactly like you said. Mm -hmm. Somewhere like much of Spain was a syndicalist which is a pretty similar idea for a few years during the 30s and they were ultimately with the help of the nazis and the non-help of any other government (laughs) uh they were crushed and and the country was ruled by a fascist dictator for decades well one thing that's that stands out to me in that point like the non-help of the other governments is if the other governments tried that at the same time, then they wouldn't be able to help at all. Mm -hmm. So like, I worry that if we were to like push this at like a global scale, it just takes one fascist military to then just sweep through. So like, that seems very complicated. (laughs) Yeah. It, it really, it's, it's difficult to conceive of it happening in the clean way that i think a lot of people talk about it that that happening and especially it's it's hard for me to conceive of uh some kind of global revolution that like the kind that was originally conceived of by marx and engels and people Mm -hmm. like that and that's that's one thing we 
like at least for me on the show a lot where there's the things that I believe and the things that I really wish they were the way they were. And then there's also like the more pragmatic side where I'm like, yeah, but I think that this is a more practical thing to shoot for. Yeah. So do you think that that, cause I've heard from people that are more pragmatic and I use the term loosely or more radical than I, that, you know, you don't want to, compromise before you don't want to give in before you've even started the the discussion so you know i'm always hesitant to be like well i don't want to say that this is what i want because i don't think it'll you know land or work well because you know you have to start from a farther position and then you know negotiate to yeah. the middle but then i also have people that be like <laughs> people be like no but i also have people say things like you know when you're coming from that position you know, like here in America, like American politics are generally right leaning, mm -hmm. you know, relative to the general political scale. But, you know, that people won't even like won't even meet with you and discuss with you because they find your position so far that it's not even workable. Yeah. So where do you do you think that we should be pushing for really radical ideas or like what do you think the way forward for American liberals is? Or I don't want to say liberals because I know you don't identify as a liberal, but like leftists that want more equality where do we go as Americans? So I think that there's an unfortunate tendency among American radicals to sort of make the the perfect the enemy of the good and don't want to I don't want this to be mis misconstrued because actually um I do think that demandless political action is really useful like doing something without a solid platform but i think that we should also be doing things with a solid platform i think that it is within the best interests of the working class and of everybody to push for things like uh increased access to medicine okay and something like universal basic income in the past, we saw leftists, including anarchists, pushing for things like child labor laws and the eight-hour work week. Those were all things that were pushed for by socialists. And I think that it's overly intellectual to have a problem with pushing for the government to have policies that are beneficial to you. Okay. While also not thinking that the government should exist. I think that the government should be doing more things to benefit the, the working class while also thinking that the government shouldn't exist at all. And I don't think that that's particularly a contradiction. So you're saying like... You wish more radicals viewed the government as a means to an end where you just keep. So you push the government to redistribute resources to a point where the concept of scarcity, you know, for like ne necessary goods like food and, and medicine, like stuff you're talking about, where it's redistributed so much that we no longer have to think in that kind of dichotomy as the have and have nots. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think that true radical change can ever be brought about directly through government policy. But okay. I do think that like when when you show up to whatever, a meeting of socialists, you know, a protest, whatever, there are always way more people 
who wish they could be there but can't because whatever. They couldn't find a babysitter. They had to go to work. They had to go to school. Whatever. They didn't have enough money for gas. They couldn't take public transportation. So even if we're talking like the most bare utilitarian things, it would be nice and it would further the cause of socialism in a very direct way if we're saying that socialism can only be brought about through direct action it's still useful to try and get the government to provide things like free bus passes or cheaper mm -hmm. health care or a better minimum wage things like that are extremely like practical Mm -hmm. and useful for if we're just thinking about that and they're also good for the working class and if we want the working class and the average person to actually be on our side we have to advocate for things that actually would they could picture helping them in their day-to-day -day lives and not just ask them to sacrifice a bunch of things in order to try and work towards this thing that you promise will be good in the future, but in the meantime okay. will not benefit them at all. So in your worldview, how do you deal with apathy? People that don't care. Like, cause I know that I completely agree with you that there's so many people that want to be more active and want to be more, you know, they want to fight for these things. They want to protest, but they are, constrained by the limits of capitalism where they have to work or they can't afford things or just mm -hmm. like, you know, so many different reasons, but there are plenty of people like, especially, you know, like middle-class white people that mm -hmm. just don't care or like it doesn't affect them. So they can't be bothered by it. And, you know, it won't be this way forever, but for now that's still the majority of the country, you know, like we on, you know, presidential elections, we have like a 60% voter turnout, but in midterms and stuff, we have less than half. How do you deal with it when more than half of the country doesn't care? I would be careful, just as an aside, I would be careful about saying voter turnout directly correlates to not caring. But Yes, because there is, <laughs> there's obviously lots and lots of obstacles, you know, especially recently with like, you know, mm -hmm. restrictive voter disenfranchisement and, you know, like voter ID laws and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and also, yeah. I I don't agree with this position, but there are people I respect who hold the position that voting is not a particularly useful action. I would that's a whole other argument that yeah. I would. So, so maybe the, the numbers that I gave are misleading based on all the extenuating factors, but there is still a huge percentage of the country that doesn't care as much as we do. Yeah, definitely. I think there will always always will be and always have been people who kind of just don't care very much um who kind of just want to sit around and have their lives be whatever but i think part of that is people not really connecting politics with how their day-to-day -day lives work yeah I, I definitely agree with that so how do you make those connections I think, like I said, pushing for things like things that would concretely affect people's day-to-day -day lives in the short term, like universal basic income and mm -hmm. enhanced 
Medicare and things like that. I think that the left is capable of pushing for those things and strong arming the government into having those things be a thing if we cared to. And I wish that we did. Okay. And I think if we did do that, that would be a great thing for people's actual material conditions being better. But also it it would be a huge public relations thing if the left could demonstrate that we can actually make the lives of the working class better because it feels to me that that's something that we haven't been focused on enough and i think that's something that needs to be focused on more that that definitely makes sense to me so you're putting the blame and i i don't disagree you're putting the blame on the people the policymakers for not giving people a reason to vote. Yeah, I think that there is a perception that voting doesn't matter very much. And I think that there's a pretty logical reason for that perception. But Mm -hmm. I think it should also be taken into account that the people who are running the government do have a vested interest in that perception because then it's easier for them in their own political careers to appeal to a smaller group yeah that definitely makes sense because it's easier to win over 30 million people than 300 million people yeah so pivoting a little bit so when we're talking about like the system so at the beginning you talked about like this totally different system that you want but then we kind of eased into working within the system we have and pushing for these things that like like universal basic income does exist in alaska and like you know expand to medicaid exists and like you know, like platforms that are a little, I think, easier to sell than small municipalities, you know, confederately working together. Yeah. So within the system that we have in place, one of the things that is definitely one of the most contested issues, at least in my personal life, is the police. Because the police is a system that is, it, I think, obviously very, very flawed. And depending on who you ask, some people think that it is perfect in every way. And there's some people that think that it, it needs to be completely abolished and started over. So we've talked very briefly, and I've heard a little bit about, like, so you think we need to basically scrap the whole system of law enforcement in this country and rebuild it. That's not exactly how I would say it, because okay. I, I don't think that it should be scrapped and rebuilt. I think that it should be scrapped. And uh, again, this is getting into the the ideal. Yeah. Because I'd like to kind of frame it the same way where, like, the ideal, how you think that, like, what happens when people are not following the rules? Like, what do you do? Like, you know, like, when you talk about, like, shooting somebody or, you know, like, you know, the majority of people would, I think, help out their fellow neighbor in their community. But, like, Mm -hmm. what do you do with the people that don't? I'd like to hear your ideal and then what you think we should be pushing for now. So I think the ideal would be, so if you have a society where people do have resources that are shared, of course, people could have personal property that's theirs. You know, somebody's not going to move into your house. But like, what if they try? What do you do? My, my point with that is that In a society like that, where people do have access easily to the things that they need, I think that it would be much less of a problem than it is now. I don't want you to think that I'm like 
pushing you super hard. I completely agree with that. Yeah. But like, I think that, you know, most of our legal issues that people have are due to scarcity, not because yeah. of, you know, people are just inherently, you know, like wanting to mm-hmm. murder people. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. If you think about like what the police do mostly in the day to day, it's protect private property and not protect p- people. Uh, and mostly it's commercial private property at that owned by the bourgeoisie, whatever. <laughs> but like, so in your system, there's still, you know, every once in a while, there's going to be some problem. Yeah, there is always violence, you know, for whatever reason, people, people will always be violent to a certain degree. I think that a community based system that is accountable to the community that it operates within and isn't so concerned with protecting private property would be a great improvement on what we have now and i think that there is still room for abuse within that but i think that it's much less room especially if it's not one community being sent to police another community which is usually how it is yeah i definitely i definitely agree with that you usually don't know the police officer that is arresting you Mm -hmm. like even even that uh that small that that definitely makes sense so if they have like you said with agency if they have agency in the neighborhood they will abuse their power less because they're part of this community as well Mm -hmm. that that definitely makes sense I've had struggles with this in my personal life. I really have told a family member that if you go through with becoming a cop, I will not consider you to be my family, Um, which sounds harsh. But as far as I'm concerned, choosing to go out and disrupt communities and disrupt people's lives in order to do what exactly like whatever is not okay with me even besides you know there's the argument that you're agreeing to to do violence that you don't think is just as part of agreeing to be a police officer i think that the job of police officer is inherently like there there's a lot of things wrong with it but one thing that's wrong with it i think is that it's inherently disruptive and disrespectful to any community and somebody who goes around doing violence against a certain community is you know destroying that community Mm -hmm. and i don't think that that's okay because i think community is really really important so the question that i have is if we have these small municipalities and like morality itself is inherently like fluid and evolving. And the question is, if you were in a, how do you prevent these communities from giving into just some sort of inbred tribalism? Because I worry that like, if you were to take a community, like the high school that I went to, like the town itself was like 99% white. Mm-hmm. And I would not trust that community to police itself. In any way, because mm-hmm. the little bit that I saw of them trying to regulate themselves was, I found, horrendous. And, like, I worry that, and I'm not saying that the answer to this is bust in a bunch of cops from another community. I think 
policing your own community with members of the community is, is an absolutely crucial reform to be made. But I worry that, like, let's say you have a community that's stable, and it's but it's very, like, one type of person-centric, that as yeah. people become more comfortable, like, I think about, like, you know, the argument that, like, you know, like, I hear all the time that, like, you know, racism got way worse under Obama when really, like, he just, like, talked about it more. Yeah. And, like, he was just giving voice to people that didn't, you know, mm-hmm. have it. Yeah, I could... I so see I just what you're wonder, saying. I, I just worry that, like, you have a community that, let's say, has no trans people in it. Or at least no openly trans people. And then all of a sudden, you have either people move in or people come out. And how ca- I wouldn't trust a community of the majority to push their morality on a minority Mm -hmm. so how do you how do you prevent that kind of like oppressive tribalism i've thought about that a lot one solution i was thinking about is that there's some kind of constitution that can't be broken or declaration of human rights that's the the only thing that a sovereign like entity can't go against but then it's just agreeing to not go against that there couldn't be any kind of power structure that enforces that otherwise that defeats the whole purpose but that's a really tough question yeah that's because that's something that i struggle with all the time because like i want to you know completely reform the police and there are like some police departments that i'm like you should not exist yeah. Because you're so, so broken. And, like, given all this history and all this ingrained structural corruption. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the argument that, like, I always think about is, like, okay, so let's say a marginalized group has people oppressing them and abusing them outside of the police. Because, obviously, I don't think it's – I'm not saying it's okay when the police does it by any means. But all of a sudden there's a hate crime. Who do you call to take care of that? Like, if I'm someone that's – either you know weak from a political perspective or like i'm someone that's physically like i am not and i'm not comparing myself to someone who's not able-bodied or anything Mm -hmm. like that but like if if this big strong guy wanted to come take all my stuff there is really very little i could do to stop him (laughs) yeah um and and on a larger scale if a well-armed large community wants to do violence to a smaller community like how do you stop that that's yeah, another exactly. really good question and that's why i'm always like cautious on and curious on the conversation of like what do we do with the police because like i don't i'm not saying that we should like it's a necessary evil to allow corruption and abuse mm-hmm. of powers to go unchecked but like that's why i'm always uncomfortable with the like we don't need them at all mm. because like you know there is still, they're not the only ones abusing their power, you know? So it's tough. Yeah, I I wonder if that could maybe be where the idea of a confederation comes in. Like a, a smaller community could confederate with many communities to like in sort of a mutual defense type of thing. I don't know if that would would work or not the thing i find most compelling about your argument is definitely the like if we had less scarcity there would be much less of an issue and then i wonder how strong of a defense force or police force whatever you want to call it you would need in a post-scarcity world Mm -hmm. that's something that i don't have any examples to have enough data to back up yeah my stance on it but that i find that to be really compelling yeah and there's there are as many different ways to answer these questions as there are people who think that anarchism is a good idea. 
Mm-hmm. And that's sort of one of the things that I find kind of appealing about it. But also I can see why that's a big flaw. Mm-hmm. I can see why people are attracted to something that calls for like a vanguard party or whatever, which I can think of a million flaws with that. But like, I can see why somebody would want there to be a single strong body that brings about revolution rather Mm -hmm. than this sort of messy idea. Yeah, it's something that a lot of people have grappled with for a really long time. But I think One thing we should remember as we ask these questions is whenever we come up with a flaw or a potential flaw with this hypothetical, we we should always ask ourselves, is this worse than what it is now, though? Absolutely. (laughs) Because what it is now is incredibly violent. Yeah, that's definitely, I think that's... Like we were saying at the very beginning, the perfect is the enemy of the good. A lot of times when we're like, okay, well, we don't have the data for it. You don't have the data unless you try. Yeah. And that's, that definitely It reminds me of when places were switching over to LED-based streetlights. They would switch over to those and it would snow and the snow would cover up the streetlights because the LEDs don't create as much heat because they're much more efficient at creating light, so they don't make as much waste heat. And people were like, oh, no, we can't use LEDs because what if snow falls on them and they don't melt the snow and nobody can see them? But they also have a gigantic list of ways that they're way better than the old light bulbs, but... This new problem that was created is a new problem that we haven't seen before. So it seems huge. It reminds me, I had a gun control argument with some idiot once on Facebook. And he was just like, well, what if all these platform, all this platform that you have and all these policies, what if they don't work? What do you do now? I'm like, what? (laughs) What What if? (laughs) What if they don't work? You just want to take away the guns. I'm like, no, I just want less people to die. If they don't work, we'll try something else. Yeah. Such a such a weird thing to say. Yeah, it's like, what if it doesn't work or what if it does work? Yeah. When you're trying something that is mostly uncharted waters, like that's all always a question you have to ask. Is this better than than the alternative yeah. choices we could be making? And I think that leaving it how it is is a would be an unconscionably bad decision. <laughs> Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And trying also like, to change things. And if we try to change it and it makes it worse, we can go back. Yeah, we <laughs> can. Not, yeah. If if we try and change things and it makes it worse, we know now that we can change it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I like that argument a whole lot. Yeah, and I think part of the problem right now is that we don't know that we can change it. I think that we mm. can change. I think in my mind that we can change it, but... Even I don't know that we can change it because we haven't changed it in a significantly good way. Yeah, at least for a pretty long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that definitely definitely makes a lot of sense. You talked about how, like, you find community so important. Are you in, like, a group or a a family or friends or whatever that is like-minded like this? Because I know you mentioned the problem you had with your family about, like, when one of them wanted to be a cop. But like that's distant family. 
Okay, but like I find your I don't know, maybe it's just like an age gap because you're you're 20, right? Mhm. And like I'm 28, so I'm ancient. But <laughs> your views on the ideal are so much more radical than like what I think of. So like where did that like come from? Like do, does your family have that same kind of view or did you fall into it later? I think I've always had a sense that what we are doing now is not good enough. Okay. Obviously, when you're really young, you don't really know and you don't have things to compare them to. So I think that I have always had a tendency towards the left. Even, you know, I've gone through phases like everybody does. When I was like 13, I was one of those annoying atheists yeah. or whatever. I, I, that was me too. <laughs> but even then, in hindsight, I was pretty politically ignorant and didn't really know much. But even back then, I could recognize that Richard Dawkins type anti-Muslim shit was bad yeah <laughs> like i i don't know if i had a natural sense for it or it was how i was raised or whatever but i could tell and i think that i sort of had a bunch of values that i didn't say but i assumed that everybody shared okay and i was very shocked when i found that some people are actually okay with thinking in a way that i think i sort of naturally find repulsive mm. so it wasn't so much that you like it's the opposite of most because i feel like most like edgy 13 year olds are like you know i'm have this very mainstream like libertarian view like mm -hmm. american libertarian and then like as they get more immersed they're like oh actually there's more nuance here and they move further to the left mm -hmm. where like for you it was you started on the left and then you saw everyone else and were like oh my god how do you live like this <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I and like I have moved farther left over time, but by the time I figured out that I was a leftist, by the time I figured out that that was a thing that you could be, I think I already knew, I already valued, I didn't learn to value a bunch of things by reading a bunch of leftist literature or something mm -hmm. or or anything like that. I, I think that I had already absorbed some of those ideas without knowing it. And okay. I think I, I had done a lot of thinking about that stuff before. And when I came to read things like Peter Kropotkin or whatever, uh, Murray Bookchin, entry-level anarchist thinkers, I was like, oh, you're correct, rather than, mm. uh, I, I mean, that's not, I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm some genius who came up with all of this no, stuff I, I myself. Like, there's, there's plenty of stuff that when you read it, there's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And then there's other stuff that it's like, oh, I always felt this way. I've just never heard it in these terms before. Yeah. Or I've, I didn't know anybody else felt this way yeah. in a, in a large scale organized or ideology. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that feeling. I did not take it as you being like, I, when I was seven, I <laughs> had all the merits of anarchism. Yeah. yeah, no, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So the last question that I have, we talked a lot about how like in the American system, it's very hard to, our version of a centrist is like the rest of the world's like conservative. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's both that and I think that there is a way to actually without like thinking about what ideas are popular 
mm-hmm. a way to categorize how ideas relate to each other to a certain okay degree it's really more complicated than it usually is with like the political spectrum or political compass or whatever mm-hmm. but I think there is a way to tell whether an idea could be categorized as being more on the right or more on the left. Okay. When you have like people with those opposite opinions as you, do you think it is worth like your distant family member that wants to be a cop and all and like people online and on social media and stuff? Do you think it is worth engaging those people? Because I'm not saying the circle of like we're all basically on the same page. We might just disagree here and there. Like, even that can be very, very heated sometimes. But I mean, like, when people, like, are far on the right, do you think that it is worth engaging them all the time? Not all the time, definitely. I think that it really does depend on the person. Okay. There's some people who are legitimately, like, misguided or don't know what they're talking about or stuck in a situation where this is what they are told And I think there are other people who the most productive way to engage them is to stop them from speaking. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we're getting into the, like, should you punch a Nazi issue, which I think most most of us have kind of in the last year and a half come around to, yeah, you should probably punch these guys. Yeah. So you're not, you're not buying into the marketplace of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that with the caveat that most or many people within the political sphere do buy into that idea. So if we want to convince those people to be on our side, which I think we do, Depending on the people, we do actually need to engage in some political theater that is convincing to that ideology. Okay. We can't just do things that are direct. We need to actually do some things that are clever in order to convince people. Okay, I see what you mean. So you still have to, like, discuss it on... No, I don't want to say their terms, but, like... If you're going to sell universal basic income, you're going to appeal your argument differently depending on the audience you're talking to. Yeah. Okay. That that definitely makes sense. I think you and I agree on that where there's some people that are worth reaching that you're like, I think I could convince you. And there's other people that you're like, there is no point in engaging you whatsoever. Yeah. I should just do the best I can to not give you a platform. Mm-hmm. That and, makes sense. And whenever they do have a platform to not let them have it be uncontested. Okay. I, I could definitely get into that. There, there, are, And there are different strategies for what that actually means. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes that does mean like turn off the, like physically turn off a camera or something. Sometimes it means physically stop them from talking or talk over them. Yeah. And and the problem with that is while well, it is effective at stopping them from doing what they're doing, it doesn't always reflect well on the person doing it. I could see that. It's not always good yeah. for optics or propaganda, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Cuz I always think about that too because like when free speech is shut down and like I use the term very loosely, because the, the audience has not heard the heinous thing yet. So maybe you've heard Richard Spencer talk before, but some guy hasn't. So you shut him down and they don't realize the level of reprehensibility that you are stopping. So I could see that where it's like, well, it looks like you're just a fascist censoring him when 
It's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, and I think it's it's down to a case by case basis. Yeah. I do believe that somebody like Richard Spencer, like if you can stop him from, you know, having a polite conversation with a waiter through force, I think that that's <laughs> that's worthwhile. Yeah, I picked a, an extreme example because he's just terrible, but yeah. yeah. But I think there there are other situations where people on the left are not eloquent or convincing because they don't believe they need to be, which they don't. From a personal standpoint, you have no obligation to be convincing or polite or whatever. Nobody does. But if you actually want to convince people, you do have to be convincing. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because I'm, all, yeah, that that resonates with me a lot. Because it's like the, I don't have the energy or the strength to deal with this right now, and I know that that doesn't help our macro case. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I totally, I totally get that. That makes sense. Cool. So, is there anything else that you want to add, Ivan? Anything that you think is important for our listeners to hear that you did not talk about? I think that it's important to say, like. I've I've said a lot of things here that I I I think when you're talking within an in group versus talking to an out group people talk differently and I think that I've I've tried my hardest to talk on this podcast as if I was talking to um somebody who who I already have a established uh, level of agreement with here Okay like it's a lot easier to disagree with people who are like on your team in private mm-hmm. than it is in public and that that definitely makes sense. Yeah, what I'm what I'm doing here is uh I think showing what a conversation in private looks like. Yeah. Well like cuz like on the show we argue all the time and we yell at each other and Sly calls me a piece of shit every week. Mm-hmm. But like if we were at a protest or in a voting booth, we would be you know lockstep together. Yeah. Like pretty much every step of the way. And I think that that's a really important point point. We infight and disagree a lot, but I think at the end of the day we all kind of want similar things at least. Yeah. You know, we want people to not die. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's more than a lot of people seem to be able that's, to say. That, in today's day and age, that's kind of, yeah, that's pretty radical. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time with me, Ivan. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, no problem. And if uh, if people want to hear you, I know we mentioned it already at the top, but you want to plug it again? Yeah, if you want to hear me not talk about this, <laughs> um, you can listen to The Color of Friendship, a podcast where me and some other people my age review Disney Channel original made-for-TV movies. I consider it to be more than just about the movies. I sort of consider it to be... This is pretentious, I guess, <laughs> but uh, like almost a record of our very specific sub-generations experience of of pop culture and things like that. So we, we, we make reference to things that uh, people who are f- five years older or younger than us will get <laughs> at most. <laughs> um, and that's, it's good and funny. 
And if you want to listen to something a little more structured uh, with me in it, you can listen to They See Me Rollin', a podcast where we play D&D 5th edition, although we're actually coming right up on the end of the current campaign that we've been doing. Yeah, I'm very, I am dreading this ending. <laughs> yeah, I, we haven't uh, recorded it yet, and it's, uh, I'm excited for it. I mean, I'm, I don't want to say I'm dreading, like, I think it's going to be bad. I think it's going to be great, but, like, yeah. you know, I've, I, like, binged the whole show, seven, like, maybe, I don't know, like, six months ago, and now all of a sudden it's ending, and I'm like, I didn't realize that I liked it so much until I was like, wait, I'm not ready to say goodbye to this. <laughs> so now's the perfect time to get caught up, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll probably revisit it occasionally. I don't know. Cool. Well, I think that's. I think I've taken up enough of your time and get back to overthrowing the bourgeois or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever it is you do when you're I was, not podcasting. I was playing uh, Total War Warhammer. Okay. <laughs> that's uh, basically that. This, yeah, I was playing as the Greenskins, so that's sort <laughs> of uh, overthrowing something or other. Yeah. Thanks for listening to me talk. Yeah, and thank you for talking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bye. I give you the incredible flying machine. (laughs) 